Today's episode comes to you in partnership with Rotacloud, the people management platform for shift-based teams. Rotacloud lets managers create and share rotas, record attendance and manage annual leave, all from a single web-based app. It also makes work simple for your team, allowing them to check their rotas, request holiday and even pick up extra shifts straight from their phones. Try Rotacloud's time-saving tools today by heading to rotacloud.com forward slash fill. Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where each week we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is Sally Beck, world-class hotelier and general manager of the Royal Lancaster in London. Coming up on today's show... Sally tells us some of her favourite pastimes. I loitered around industrial estates in that car. Phil goes all controversial. Well, here's a question for you then. And please don't take this the wrong way. And Sally gives us some irresistible stories. Best story, the best story I have, because it was just, oh my God. All that and so much more as Sally chances through her epic story so far. Sally is quite rightly one of the most renowned hoteliers in the UK. It's very clear that she cares a great deal about hospitality, that in itself one of the main drivers to her forming the Hoteliers Charter, which continues to gain positive ground. Not only that, she has some fantastic stories from her career in the industry, and perhaps the greatest quote we've ever had on the show. One final thing before we get into it, and I know I go on about this, but if you can take two seconds to subscribe to the show and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts, it really makes a huge difference. Enjoy. And a huge hospitality meets welcome to Sally Beck. Hello, Sally. Hello, Phil. Lovely to see you again. Yes, indeed. How are you doing? Uh, I'm really well, thank you. Really well. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good, good, good. How's, uh, how's business? Going. It's a question I have to ask everybody these days. Well, it's been a really good start to the year, actually. I'd say January performed as it was meant to, um, sort of in line with our expectations. Um, but February, we've had some really lovely pickups and some extra business that we weren't expecting. So we're ahead of the game for February and March and April is looking good, too. So compared to where we finished the end of last year, a little bit worried about how 23 might pan out. It started pretty well. Yeah, I think there was a, there was a lot of that. I think there was, I mean, it kind of uh, makes a mockery of forecasting, doesn't it? Really? Uh, <laughs> should we just dispense with forecasting? Um, yeah, I think. So. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, where are you? It looks like you're you're probably in your office today, are you? Yeah, I've always been in my office, even through you know when we just started reopening. Um, the business is run here. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I get slightly frustrated with my train at the moment because I've been coming in all the time. Ah, right, yeah. And now on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, it's rammed. And then this morning, there's nobody coming in. And I think, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, for context, we're recording this on a Friday. So uh, there, yeah. there is a terminology for people who work. Th- there is. Tuesday, I wasn't sure <laughs> safe to share it but it's a tuesday wednesday and thursday the, yes the tuesday yeah. wednesday and thursday brigades we'll call them yeah. yes um no that's great well I, I mean let's just get cracking then take us all the way back how did you get into hospitality in the first place well uh i'm a publican's daughter from scunthorpe so uh, okay i didn't realize you were from scunthorpe <laughs> I, have, I have family history there yeah well um I went to a girls' boarding school, so I think the uh, the accent disappeared. Mm. But I come from a long line of publicans. So my father, grandfather, great-grandfather had pubs and small hotels around Scunthorpe, Sheffield, around that area. And so I didn't live in a house till I was about I think, 16, 15 or 16. So always lived above the pub or above the hotel. And, yeah, never had my own front door. So we were always just doing stuff, whether it was bottling up before school or working in the kitchen or just, you know, being around. It just it just seemed a natural progression. So, yeah, my sister studied languages and went off to, you know, uh, college doing languages and A-levels and stuff. And I just couldn't think of anything else to do other than hospitality because it just felt the natural thing for me. Right. So, um, yeah, I went to Grimsby Tech and did hotel catering and institutional management and then went down to the Dormy Hotel in Ferndown, which is now a car park, um, oh. and was a trainee manager for a couple of years. And then at the end of the traineeship, I thought, oh, I'm not sure I want to do the operations stuff. Okay. Because um, I had done done all that. So, uh, and Derek Silk, who was my first general manager, gave me the opportunity to work in sales. 
so yeah, I started loitering around industrial estates with my two CV and, um, and really enjoyed sales. And that was it. So I just continued my career through sales and marketing. Is that a, um, a Citroen 2CV that you're talking about? Yeah, a little red bouncy car, yeah. 50 quid. Yeah, and I had to hotwire it to start. Um, so, yeah, and the uh, the petrol gauge had gone. So when I filled it up, I used to write on chalk, with chalk what the mileage was when I filled it up and then estimate when it would be that I would need to fill it up again. It's a true, a true student car. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. You could always uh, you could always hear them coming. Um, yeah, I will it never, like a machine. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> I will never ever forget. I was in primary school, and my my mother had always wanted to buy a, a two CV. Yeah. And um, as a as a kid, you know, when you're trying to kind of make your way in life and be popular and all of that sort of thing, when my mother rocked up in a two CV, I was like, oh my god! <laughs> um, but kids yeah. ended up loving it because it was uh, it's such a quirky car. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I think if I, if I had another car, I'd, I'd pick one up. I have it as a summer car. They flip the lid down and the actual seats, the front seats, you know, they come out so you can have a picnic. Yeah. It's the perfect <laughs> car. Um, yeah, I love it. So, yeah, that was my, I loitered around industrial estates in that car. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So that was your, your the start of your journey in sales then uh, at that yeah. point. And was, was, there a, was there a kind of a, a feeling within you that that is that's exactly what I want to do? Or did you kind of just land on it by accident? No, I think it was what I wanted to do. Um, I, I suppose it was a bit of accident that Derek Silk gave me the opportunity, but then I loved it. Yeah. I think if, if you love this industry, and I, I had a practical knowledge about the industry, you know, and knew how to do the events and, and all the rest of it. So, you know, I could talk to the client about what they wanted and then make sure that we could deliver it. And um, yeah, I loved it. I love sales. And then I was from then I I literally just I worked for Clipper Hotels, which is six hotels down the southeast. Uh, then I went up to London and worked for the Great Western Royal, as was, which is now the Hilton Paddington. Then I went across to the Conrad in Chelsea Harbour, working for Dorian Bolding. Then did the reopening of the Royal Garden um, back in ninety five. Yeah, ninety five, ninety six. Um, and then uh, I went traveling for a couple of years with my husband, sort of dropped out for a bit yeah. and then came back and took uh, the landmark as director of sales and marketing in 2001, which is our sister hotel here. Yeah. And then I stayed there for 12 years as director of sales and marketing. And that was when the MD, Brian Kladnick and the senior team suggested that I come over here to the Royal Lancaster to be hotel manager and work under Stephen Kiak Lane, who was the general manager at the time. Um, and it was like, ooh, okay. Uh, and by that time, I sort of thought, yeah, you know, I think I'm about ready to go back into operations. So um, I came over with a view to learn from Stephen for two years before taking over as GM. But he actually left within three months. So I had a bit of a panic, and, um, <laughs> and I ended up caretaking the GM role for uh, six months, eight months, and then eventually, you know, Took, took it formally yeah. about a year later and haven't looked back. So it was, it was quite a leap of faith for the company to give no doubt, yeah. an un, untested, untried GM a property the size of the Royal Lancaster. And at the timing, we were about to go into an 85 million refit. So not only was it a first GM role, it was a first GM role doing a monster project and shifting the hotel from a four-star to a five-star property whilst keeping it open whilst doing that big, big project. Yeah. And I, and I loved it. So, well, here's a question for you then. And please don't take this the wrong way, but, like, why? Like, because that is, as you say, that's, I mean, I suppose they were taking, they thought they saw something in you from an operational perspective, opportunity as a hotel manager. You'll learn from somebody who's super experienced, I would imagine, in that role, and then you know you can climb the ranks accordingly. But then you're obviously just thrust straight into the deep end. the The pragmatic part of my brain says, if I was an owner, would I take a chance on somebody like that for something? Exactly. Like that? Yeah, I wasn't. Believe you me, Phil, I wasn't the first choice. Right. So, okay. <laughs> uh, they went. They went through. Um, uh, they went through, and certainly, I didn't even put myself forward on the first first round. 
because mm. um, I was panicked about running the being a GM yeah, anyway. Of course. And so it was the first round of um, of um, interviews and couldn't find anybody. And then the second round, I'd got more confident, uh, and I thought actually I'll put my hat into the ring. Right. And so second round, I put my hat into the ring and didn't get chosen. But then the guy who was chosen pulled out. And then it was, listen, Sally, let's give you a shot. And, and equally, I'd worked with the company for 12, 13 years. Indeed. There's a lot um, of goodwill there, right? And yeah, in terms so, of you know each other. Yeah, so they knew me. I'd already been running it for about a year anyway and was still working with the project because the project was going whether I was going to be the one that led it through or not. Um, we started the capital plant replacement in 2013 where I was still acting GM while they were still looking for a, a permanent GM. Yeah. And so I was already chairing the project meetings and working with the project team. And I suppose it was a, quite a slow transition. So they ended up thinking, well, actually, she's doing okay anyway. Maybe we just carry on. Yeah. Um, so it, it wasn't a ringing endorsement, but I also get that it was, <laughs> it was a, um, you know, it's just, it's a big beast, you know, yeah. um, it's, quite, it's quite a risk. But yeah, so it's all worked out well. But um, I, I, you know, it's a, it was an unusual shift from a director of sales and marketing to doing what I did and how I've done it here was an unusual thing. But it it worked well. I mean, the company are a lovely company. It's owned by a lovely family, and it's a very open, transparent, good communication, loyal team. And equally, yeah. the project team were tried and tested for the company. So I was in good hands with Keith Gilchrist and some of the other guys there who had done all this before. Yeah, so, yeah, I think as much as it was seemed high risk, when you actually get into it, it was probably low risk. Yeah, I, I totally. And, you know, there's a lot to be said for the, the just that synergy of knowing each other, right? I mean, you, from a, a leadership perspective, whether you're leading your team or whether they're leading your strategic direction or however that looks like, you know each other's limitations and you know each other's drive and you know each other's you know, kind of everything really so they they must have seen something in you and as you said you, you know you were doing okay anyway so um so yeah. why not motivate somebody by giving them this wonderful wonderful oh. opportunity <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and when do they come along right to, to have the opportunity to to lead a project like that yeah. you know to completely transform a hotel which we will get onto, I am sure, uh, at some point. Yeah, I, 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 I'm always fascinated about why stuff happens. Um, mm. And a lot of the, the time you can overthink why stuff happens. And I think fundamentally, if you just, if you like the people and you get each other and there's enough drive and motivation, then amazing things can happen, right? Yeah, I think so. I think good relationships are always based on trust. And say Brian Kladnick is still MD of our company now. So you know, I've worked with him now for 22 years. Yeah. And he yeah. also supported me through that transition, knowing that that was quite a big learning curve for me. Yeah. Um, which was great. Absolutely. So, yeah. We absolutely skirted over your life in sales. I'm, I'm going to have to go back because the um, there's, having led a life in sales myself, I suppose, it is a place that's that's pretty story driven a lot of the time, especially because you you know you kind of have to be out and about and front and center and you know putting places on the map uh, and all of that. So, do you have any stories from your life in sales? Basically, I think is the, um... <laughs> the best story. The best story I have because it was just oh my god was when I was doing the reopening of the Royal Garden and um, a guy called Robert Enifer from Conference People was taking. He was organising. Euro 96, if you remember back uh, to those days. Indeed, yeah. Um, and the hotel was opening, oh God, in back end of 95. And they were, I'm trying to get my dates right, I think it was back in the 95. Anyway, they were coming around and, and having a look at all the hotels. And we were in the bid. And then we were told that we were out of the bid. And I said to Robert, why, why are we out of the bid? And he said, well, you can't offer... 2,000 square feet of space with natural lighting, which which we couldn't. Yeah. And but I said, well, what, what, are they, yeah, what are they doing with that? And he said, oh, they're moving all their offices from UEFA. They, they need that. And I said, oh, okay, hold on a minute. I won't bring the beds back on the first floor. So if I don't bring the beds back on the first floor, 
they have got 44 officers with their own ensuite, with a safe, with their own key, air conditioning. We won't bring the beds back, we'll put desks in and we will create these offices for UEFA. And uh, he said, Sally, listen, they're, they're Swiss. He said, they're not, they're not going to come and see you. They've, they're already looking at the other ones on the pit, pit pitch. And I said, Robert, you've got, you've got to let us have a look. Because we, op we, we opened in 1966 and we hosted the World Cup. And I said, you know, now it's 1996. It'd be really rude that we don't even get a bloody look in. Yeah. Anyway, he, 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 he stopped them. So they'd had all their site inspections and they were stopping. He, he made them do an impromptu stop at the Royal Garden on the way to the airport. All right. Now, if you can picture it, the Royal Garden was a bomb site. There's 200 buildings, builders climbing all over it. It was nothing. I'd got graffiti on the lifts. It was <laughs> so I went to Marks and Spencer's, which is just down the road on Ken High Street, and picked up croissants and stuff. I'd already bought like a, a tea set, and I'd got a tea set set up in one of these rooms. And so Robert does the impromptu stop for these Swiss business guys, all the UEFA lot. And I literally it was me and the general manager, Graham Bamford, and and a, and a cleaner that had swept out <laughs> swept out a room. And I basically sort of walked them through and told them just to get get their sort of purple, you know, their little rose coloured spectacles on and envision what the future could look like. Yeah, yeah. Took them through the knackered lobby, told them where everything would be, took them into the lifts and said, okay, and this would be your floor. And then, you know, showed them around and took them into Graham's office and gave him coffee. And then I just literally finished it and I said the same thing I said to Robert that in 66 we opened and hosted the World Club, and in 96 we reopen. It would be really rude not to put the business with us. And um, shook the hand. I was going to say, thrust the hand into their face. <laughs> no, yeah, no idea where we were. And then Robert rang me about a week later. He said, bloody hell, you pulled it off. They booked oh, us in, life. and we were the host for, we were the headquarters for Euro 96. And we had a million pound in the bank deposit before we even opened um, so it was a huge success and it put the hotel back on the map for sporting business and it was great. And so the hotel opened, I think, around about March, March, April 96. And the tournament started back end of May and through June. And, and we just continued opening and, and it just worked out really well. Yeah. Worked out really. So that was, that was like a cracking piece of business that we rescued from nothing. And from then on, Robert Ennef has always been known to me as Euro Rob. <laughs> <laughs> My life. I mean, it also shows you, right, that if ever, if anybody out there is listening from a sales perspective or has an interest in going into the world of sales, like, be bold, right? I mean, you, you'd lost that business. It had gone already. But you, have, you also have to understand what the client's doing. You've got to ask good questions. So what are they using it for? Why do they need it? What are they? And that was, oh my God, I could bring the back. I, I can give them a whole floor. <laughs> we can make this work. Yeah. So yeah. But if I just accepted that I couldn't give them the space of natural lighting, it would have been dead. Yeah. And but, um, being able to think anyway. on your feet as well to actually conjure up, uh, right, what, okay, so we can't do it naturally, but what can we do? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was the best piece of business thing I've won in my career. Yeah, well, I, I can dine out on that for years, I think, to be honest. <laughs> That's a belter. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, well, um, let's move forward again, back to where we are now. Now, you, well, actually, just before, I suppose. So you had taken the role as the GM ahead of moving into a refurbishment. And then, well, I suppose refurbishment. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we kept it quite quiet. The, the capital plant replacement was changing all plumbing, electrics, air conditioning, which we did without telling anybody. Um, and then we took off the top 200 rooms and connected those rooms with the new kit and didn't tell anyone. Right. And the 10th floor was the buffer floor um, so that no one had any noise. And then I said to the owner, I said, I don't mean funny, but you're never going to get the return on investment on the bedrooms unless we do the lobby. And he said, Sally, it's too much to do the lobby. It's just too much. It's too much pressure for the team. And I said, honestly, let us do it, please, because otherwise we'd be carnage. Anyway, he agreed and spent another 15 million on the lobby. Um, as one does. As one does. Yeah. Um, and so we were completing the rooms. We then, you know, put the, you know, the new rooms were then open and then we started on the, on the bottom sort of nine floors. And then um, and we only came clean and told everyone we took the lobby off. 
Right. So we take the lobby off and then we created another opening, which is through the Nine Kings, where there's a rigger's entrance. And we made a fake lobby in one of the sections of the Nine Kings. And we had everybody move through there and into the lifts. And we kept the whole hotel open. The most stressful day was when we were opening the lobby to a residential conference from America. And, you know, they were expecting it would all be open, you know, all be open. Yeah. And we, it, I mean, it take, takes you right to the wire. The organizer arrived on the weekend before, but their space was contracted for them from 8 a.m. Monday morning. And it was carnage the weekend before. Yeah. I mean, I got 300 builders putting the last bits and bobs in and painting everywhere. And it was just, it was just like crap. It's so, you just don't want the organizer to see that. Yeah. Because he didn't only see it, he was living through it thinking she's never going to have this place open. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to happen. You're probably um, thinking, I'm never going to have this place open. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely squeaky bum time. Yeah. Anyway, so I saw him uh, I saw him on the Sunday night, because I stayed in that weekend just killing everybody, and he said, how could you possibly do this to me? And, and I said, do what to you? You're contracted from 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. Everything will be ready for you at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. It's just a shame that you're watching us get ready for you. Yeah. No, it'll be fine. At 6 a.m. that morning, we were pretty much nailed that, that Monday morning, but we hadn't put the front, <laughs> the actual door handles on the new entrance. Okay. And our chauffeur was going to pick up his client, the VIP, from the airport, and I remember ringing Joe, the chauffeur, saying, do me a favour, Joe, find a queue and sit in it. <laughs> I need I need a bit longer. Yeah. And uh, anyway, we got the handles on the door as, as literally he pulls in, and then we open up the door, and the lobby's there, and everything's fine, and we went on. And, uh, and they invited me to a wrap party on the Thursday afternoon. This is about probably the Monday morning, the Thursday afternoon. And... And we all had champagne and we had a round of applause for every, for them entrusting us and for us in delivering. Yeah. But they said we had never, no, didn't think you'd pull it off. And I said, I said, I always knew we'd, we'd get you what you needed. You know, maybe not what you want, but we'd get you what you need. But we actually delivered it. But it was full on pressure. Yeah. Um, so that was, yeah. But the, the builders, the contractors, they all worked with me on it. They all knew exactly what I was fronting up in terms of supporting them. They had to hit this delivery timeline and, and they did, but it was a whole teamwork thing. But yeah, that was, that was our most pressured. A bit sweaty. Yeah. yeah. You can't be a bit of positive pressure for getting, I saw something on Instagram actually, which has just made me laugh. Uh, I think it's a, it's a, a site called digitally baffled and it, it's little cartoons about, life really and what yeah. goes on but they're hilarious and one of them talks about uh, this thing called deadline mode that your brain goes yeah. into when there's a, a deadline to hit and actually putting people under a bit of positive pressure is actually it's a pretty good thing because it, you you really get to see people shine right really excel I mean that's one of two things happens people sink or swim right that's the that's effectively what yeah generally happens but i just have a vision of you uh, with that person the the night before said you know you're seeing us in a kind of worst moment here it'll be fine by eight o'clock and as soon as you've shaken hands and he's gone off you heading back to your office and having a, a macallan or something like that just <laughs> take the edge off uh, we we do you know it was it was good teamwork we've got we had a great team but it was it was a lot but all of us now, there's a lot of us that are still here. We use the same team coming right the way through from the old Royal Lancaster or the old Lancaster London to the new Royal Lancaster. Yeah, we lived through those days working hard and pulling it together. And I, I've been watching the, the, I don't know if you've seen the Claridge's build. It yeah. makes ours look tiny, but ours was massive. But it brought me back to where was noise? What was a kanga? When was that going to be? When can we do that? When can we do that? When couldn't we do the other? And it was just, it was a logistical jigsaw that we just positively worked towards and we just kept going with it. And it was energizing and it was great. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. So what would you say then to somebody, because uh, it, it's a very difficult skill set to learn unless you actually 
do it, right? I mean, and so to come in with no ex- no experience, I mean, you have obviously yeah. all the experience that you have behind you, but to come into a situation like that, where I mean, it's not like it's just a, you know, we're going to refurb a couple of bedrooms. It's a, a complete overhaul. What would you say to somebody who's who's got to take on something like that, who's not got any experience? Yeah. I would say to definitely make sure there's no barriers, um, no barriers and no egos. I mean, the the meetings that we had were 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 tense meetings that you needed you needed full transparency. Yeah. Whether it's your M and E consultant, your designer, your contractor, your quantity surveyor, the ops team, you know, you need full transparency, and you need someone to say if they're in the shit or they've dropped a deadline or something's broken. You've got to have the confidence in the room to say it, and you have to have the meeting in the room. And so when I started, when I took over from Stephen, that was the first thing I said when I sat down with all of them. I said, okay. And I said, I need the meetings to happen in this room. I can't have you walking out of here and saying, well, actually, that was a bit of bullshit. It's this, this is actually what's going to happen. Yeah. You know, it has to happen in the room because it's only us that are going to solve it. We are in a live building. We have to have full transparency with no blame. We just got to understand it so we can move forward. So, and, and that's what we had. And there was no egos, which I really liked. Um, you know, the designers didn't get all twitchy if somebody criticized that their design didn't work. Right. Um, and the, the contractors trying to work through very difficult drain issues needed the designers to understand the conflict of the drains and the falls and the God knows well. And I had my chief engineer who needs to know that he can actually clean them when this lot are finished and gone. Sorry to interrupt, but a quick word to give special mention to our sponsor, Rotacloud, without whom this podcast wouldn't even be possible. With thousands of customers worldwide, Rotacloud is already saving businesses like yours hundreds of hours of staffing-related admin every year. It's been described by its users as everything from a lifesaver to an absolute no-brainer, with one customer even saying that they'd rather stick forks in their eyes than go back to doing their rotas the old-fashioned way. If you're ready to take the pain out of people management, I highly recommend heading over to rotacloud.com forward slash fill to sign up for your free 30-day trial and see how Rotacloud can benefit your business. Now let's get back to it. So you needed that transparency and that trust in the room that you could be honest and straightforward. And I think that really helped us. And then I also did, um, not regular, but, you know, I, I did... Friday drink sessions with the contractors just to say thank you we got to Friday you're still on target let's have a beer let's keep going the more I was able to be generous with them and kind to them when I needed them they'd give me more and because we were a live hotel there were some people I could get to stay over so they could work better or work harder I had them working weekends but they had to understand that I've got Middle East guests in that don't wake up early so you cannot make a noise before 11 on a weekend or whatever. Yeah. When a bloke's in a building place with a hat on and a hammer, he has to bang it. It's a real pain. And and they don't get that there's guests sleeping and that one bang will reverberate right the way through. Mm. So it was a, it was definitely communication, communication, communication. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So I... any advice would be just just make sure there's no fear in the room, no fear at that table. And, and and people can be transparent. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's a massive leadership lesson there, like for any scenario, right? I mean, just in terms of how you lead a business, whether you're leading it through a refurbishment or day to day, is to to keep that transparency. And I, I love your focus on kindness there, because I think it's a it's a strength that gets overlooked a lot of the time, but it has so much power in terms of actually bringing people together and you know getting people into a situation where they're just looking after each other because it just happens yeah yeah it's true i mean you know it's no secret i've always said here i want to run the happiest hotel in london and a lot of that kindness thing is is a piece yeah you know people don't get up in the morning to do a bad day's work they get up in the morning to do a great day's work and stuff gets in the way and it's how we handle that stuff Yep. that determines whether we're good, great, or indifferent. So, you know, I think it's really important to understand if something's gone wrong, why it's gone wrong, as opposed to who did it. 
and, and, and often it can be communication, it can be tools, it can be all sorts of things. But if you look at the issue rather than the person, you can get there um, without killing people and undermining them and making them feel crap. You yeah, know, yeah. You can change yeah. that. Yeah. And that, and that, be, that breeds trust and all relationships uh, form well on trust. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, if you've got trust that you're not going to get killed, um, then good you, start. You've more, you know, you've got more energy, haven't you? You've got more energy, yeah. more creativity, more empowerment, and you're a bit braver to fix things. Yeah. So, yeah, so I think that's really important. Absolutely. I, I think that, that, that building a, a, an atmosphere of trust whereby people don't fear repercussion for making an error, you know, as you say, yeah. they, they didn't, the vast majority of times people make errors with the right intention. Um, yeah. as, as long as it's not for bad intentions, then, you know, the, give them the, the forum to be able to come clean easily. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think it's important. Yeah, totally. I, uh, I can't move past that without, uh, uh, this is a quote now, probably the, the greatest line we might have ever had on the show. Nobody knew we were doing it until we took the lobby off. I mean, that, that's just going to go down in folklore. <laughs> it's true. Then we had to come and say, okay, we're under refurbishment. Yeah. We'd been under refurbishment about three or four years until we took the lobby off. No one knew. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. Why are they taking the lot? Ah, right, right, right. Yeah, superb. <laughs> I feel like that that probably leads us into uh, the, the dreaded C time of our lives, the COVID time. Yeah. Your refurbishment happened before and during that time? No, we finished. We literally we finished. finished. The last thing we had to do was the living wall that we put around the building and, and sort of a beautiful um, Lancaster rose that was our sort of centrepiece to the, to the entrance. And, and then we were open. So we opened properly without scaffolding, without any other rubbish going on in sort of back end of 2018, beginning of 2019. Right. So so right. we literally, it's just, you know, we were starting our trajectory of, you know, being back to being a full hotel and, and, and transitioning into our recovery. And then we got cut short by COVID. Yeah, well, you, I mean, you kind of had a, a double um, recovery as well because you'd also, with the refurb, it was a reposition as well, wasn't it? It, it, yeah. it was take, yeah. elevating it up, up a notch or two. Um, yeah, definitely. And that takes, we were talking before we switched the microphone on around the fact that that takes time. It's not just a switch on yeah. and you're there. Um, yeah, and then to have the rug pulled from under you just as you were probably beginning to move in the right direction. Yeah, it's true. I was emotionally invested in not closing, which with hindsight was probably the wrong plan. Right. Um, I think I think the government said you had to close in March or something, and we actually closed 1st of April. I think because we'd stayed open through all sorts of adversity, I, I, I just didn't want to close. Yeah. I was thinking, can, can we not be an NHS hotel? Can we not do this? We, and I just couldn't make it work, trying to work with... You know, St Mary's is a wonderful uh, hospital, but the NHS it's very clunky to work in that environment, and and we just couldn't couldn't make it work. So we we did close first of April, and then stayed closed until August. Uh, our company were wonderful. You know, everyone went on furlough. I had a team of people that didn't go on furlough, myself included. None of us, uh, and we worked through and talked to the clients, and moved events and we're a big events hotel. Just kept moving things. Um, our engineers stayed on site. Actually, we had a team of vulnerable team members that came and lived in the hotel and um, did all the flushing to make sure there was no Legionella and kept the building safe, etc. And they mm. moved in. And so I would come down and see them probably once or twice a week. Uh, it was a really weird place to be uh, when your hotel's closed. Um, and, but we would do so that it was we had 24 hour security. And we were constantly looking after the rooms and flushing uh, and doing PPMs and just doing engineering stuff that we could do and get on with that is harder when you've got guests in the room. Yeah. So we're getting all that done. Um, and our night manager, Lot, who's a bit of a yoga guru, would do yoga in the lobby at eight o'clock for all those that were living in. So I'd done yoga in our lobby, which was <laughs> weird. Um, we had a running machine we put in the lobby and we ran the marathon on the marathon day and raised money, even though it was just like I was doing a virtual marathon. Yeah, it, so we did stuff just to keep everybody entertained. And then we opened up in August when we could. Yeah. And we went from 
2% occupancy to three, then five, then seven, then nine, and slowly built it back. And then I was able to do flexi furlough with team members, which was really good for mental health. So you could bring people back and, and then send other people off so that people, and those that did flexi furlough probably had the best, best mental health. Those that worked the whole time were resentful of those that were off. Um, those that were off um, were making sourdough and doing whatever they were doing and yeah. and having a lovely time. I don't know that they were resentful for those that were working, but there was a different, there was a bit of a tension. Yeah. I forced them all to come in um, and do a re-induction before we hosted, we were hosting, we were the headquarters of um, the Euros again. So they all needed to come back in. And at that time, so we went from like, I think 15% occupancy for the three weeks of the Euros, we were doing um, uh, semis, semi-finals and finals. That was our hotel, our hotel was gonna be full mm. and they were all coming over again. And we needed more staff. And um, so I contacted all the colleges and universities that had had um, students that couldn't work through lockdown, couldn't get work experience. And we had 50 students that came and lived in at our sister hotel, K West, and worked for us for that period and became the extra that we needed on top of our team. Um, because then the minute, the minute the Euros were over, we were back to sort of bobbling around at 15% occupancies. Yeah. But we needed to peak to get to sort of like the 90s and the 100s again. Um, so it was a challenging time, but through communication, we, we worked well. We worked as a team. And we, we kept, I mean, we, we had to make redundancies, but we kept the core team. And I'm particularly proud that we kept our events team. It was a big events hotel. Yeah. I think, I think you can't replace that knowledge. You just don't want to make that team redundant. And they were super flexible, those guys. Foisel, who heads our operation, he came and headed security for me. Right. Leo, Ali, Hassan, who were all in events, came and became, they got their SLA license and, and literally patrolled the hotel and turned in security agents. Costa became a painter. Um, Emilian um, dropped his salary and became a food and beverage waiter. Everyone stayed. And then, so when the events came back, I was able to then bring everybody back into events. And, and when events did come back, they came back with a boom and, and we were in a good place to, to look after our guests. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, once again, right, you, you kind of highlight as well, when you've, got, when you've got great people who just care, mm. like you don't, the, the job description becomes unimportant, doesn't it? I mean, it's just, yeah. it's just about doing the right thing, whatever that yeah. looks like in that moment that's right in front of you uh, at the time uh, and that was yeah. such a I mean it's such a, a time of life where nobody really knew how to navigate it you know you just had to do the best you could with with the information you had and yeah everybody made mistakes for sure yeah um, yeah I, I do I certainly do some things differently but god you know you just got to get through it with integrity what we said was what you have to do is be resilient if you're resilient you can be creative and if you can be creative, you can find a way through that, over it, and get around it or whatever. Yeah. And if you wrap it all up in care, caring for the business, caring for the reputation, caring for the team, caring for the client, if you wrap it up with creativity, resilience, and care, and if that's what you base your decisions on, you're going to be okay. Because what else can you do? Totally. And then, so then... Is this when the spark for the Hoteliers Charter came into your head? Or uh, was this something no, you'd had? Yeah, the charter came in um, in 2019. I was um, very kindly given the Hotel of the Year. And I knew I had to do a speech. And I looked at how long the Hotel of the Year Award had been going, which is 36 years. And I'd had a situation uh, the year before when my daughter, who was 15, was doing work experience. We live in Leafy Buckinghamshire. She lives. She worked in. Was at a comprehensive school. And she was coming to do work experience um, at our hotel, and she was doing it with a girlfriend. And we'd set up a nice little set of five days. Them a day in pastry because everyone loves pastry. Um, <laughs> they and you know concierge gain food and beverage and guest relations and whatever else. And so you know they just get a little bit of an overview. Yeah. And um, so her and a girlfriend were looking forward to it, and. The mum of the girlfriend cancelled 
the week before saying, why would I want my daughter to be a servant? And I thought, you're joking me. Yeah. And, and so that was part of my speech saying in 36 years as hoteliers, we have not managed to shift the narrative in our industry from long hours and poor pay. And, and, and it's not true. Hoteliers, I'm not saying hospitality generally doesn't do it better, but hoteliers definitely do it better. It is careers, not just jobs. Yeah. You, you know, we do have fair service charge and transparent service charge. We do care for our team. We do develop and take apprenticeships and stuff. You know, we, we, we do it properly. And I felt that hoteliers should stand up and be counted. And, and I made a speech I can't remember where it was now, but it was the speech that, and I got quite, you know, impassioned about it, just thinking, you know, we, we lumped with hospitality and sometimes, I'm not saying at all, but sometimes in hospitality, people don't do it well. You know, there's certain chefs that have made their careers in bullying. Yeah. And it's on national TV and it's accepted. There's, you know, another chef that got caught topping up minimum pay with service charge. Mm. And, and, and said that that's what happens. Everybody does it. And no one challenged it. Yeah. And these are restaurants. And that gives the public a perception that that's what it is. And it's not. No, absolutely. You know, I can run a restaurant without ripping off my staff. You know, I, I, and, and so can 90% of the businesses that are running businesses in hospitality and hotels. But the narrative is wrong and it needed changing. So after that speech, people came up to me saying, well, let, let's do something. Let's, let's make a hotelier's charter. Let's, let's do it. And it's like, oh, my God. And so this snowball started happening. So um, we, we wrote 10 points um, with Kate Nichols from UKH, UK Hospitality. And Who's she? I, 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 I've never heard of her before. <laughs> She's a top chick. Yeah. And so her, um, I asked um, Simon Numfer from the AA, I asked Mark Lewis um, from Hospitality Action. I asked a key bunch of people that I knew, and I said, "Let's let's write ten things," which we did, and and the charter was born. People volunteered to do a website, volunteered to help me do stuff, and you know we were quiet. It was lockdown. We had time. Yeah. And uh, five hundred hotels signed up, and you know I've got a full time day job. Um, so. Handed it, handed it to. Um, there was four people helping me. Uh, Petra from Custard Communications, um, Michael De Jong from Avio, all gave their time for nothing. Myself and my husband also helped, and we transferred the whole lot to UKH. So Kate Nichols and Jackie Marlowe uh, now have got the Hoteliers Charter. Their plan is to move it into a hospitality charter uh, and raise the profile of progressive businesses that do it well. Um, I'm yes. not sure when they'll do that, but yeah. So it was. It came from this mother that <laughs> just said no to work experience for a young 15-year-old who then went and did an apprenticeship in accounting and failed. Right. Yeah. Whereas my daughter went and did an apprenticeship in hospitality and she's loving it. Yeah. And she did her apprenticeship with Red Carnation and that work experience for her opened her eyes to actually, yes, this is a route that I might want to go down. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so that's how it came about. Brilliant, yeah. I mean, it, it shows you that the, the great ideas come from a moment of adversity generally, um, mm. and that was the, the, the moment of adversity for us as an industry, I suppose. It's a realisation that whatever it is that we've done, we've if, even if we've done it well, we've not shouted about it loud enough. Um, no, and the narrative is wrong, and 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 it's it's wrong, and and we need to change it. Yeah. And yeah. and and yeah, and and otherwise parents will never allow their young to come into hospitality. You know, as a publican's daughter from Scunthorpe who didn't go to university, I'm running one of the best hotels in London. I, I had made a note of that, Sally. That was <laughs> unbelievable. You know, and 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 it's just with you know. Liking people, having a good energy, and and that's it really. It's not rocket cracking science. on, yeah. Yeah, just getting on with it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But I, you know that I think that that's why I, I was super keen to have you on the show because I had to, I've heard uh, you talk at, at other on other podcasts and other events and things like that. And and you know, it's great that you you absolutely recognise kind of where you've come from, 
and where you've gone to, you know. So it also kind of demonstrates to me the the power of a career in this industry because you can literally set your sights on something and it'll, you know you can go there. Like if you've got enough mm-hmm. drive and attitude to to do it, you you know, and take the take the rough with the smooth when it comes because it's going to come. Mm. You know, you can the, the world is really your oyster. Mm. And just a question. I'm conscious that our time is ticking, but a, a question just on that. When was there a moment? Because I suppose coming becoming the GM of the Royal Lancaster has kind of been a little bit of a happy accident. But was there a time that you can remember where you actually set the vision that actually I want to become a hotel GM now, or was it because somebody approached you and said we'd we'd actually like you to to consider the hotel manager's role over at the, the Lancaster? Yeah, I, th- I think when Brian and Francis and Stephen, who are GMs of the day, wanted me to do to come over here, it was like, oh, okay. And I, I did come over, and I was thinking I wanted a change. But in that sort of lull period when I was acting GM and finding my way, um before finding the confidence and then getting the endorsement of finally getting it, third choice, um, <laughs> was, that was probably where I was at my most doubtful. You know, this is a big beast. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it's, it's yeah, you've you, you got to do it well. You know, I, I have a great regard for our owners and I wouldn't want to let them down. And I happen to have been given some coaching at that time. And I wasn't sure whether to throw my hat into the ring or not. And the coach, I think it's a typical coaching technique, I never knew it, but anyway, you put yourself two years ahead and you look back having achieved the job. Yep. And yep. You know, how do you feel? And it felt great right. in this coaching session. It felt great that I could do it and it just gave me a confidence to think, no, sod it, I can do it. Um, it isn't rocket science. It is relationships. Yeah, sometimes I think we get too caught up. But yeah, so yeah, yeah so it, I did feel doubtful, but it was good timing. Um, I was given this coaching session that we were doing across some of the senior managers. It just happened to be that I was thinking about do I, don't I, should I, could I, all mm. that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but that particular session made me go with my loins and think, no, sod it, let's go for it. The little voice in your head that <laughs> uh, yeah tells us all sorts of stories, doesn't it, about uh, yeah. about what we can and can't do. But um, yeah. yeah, great. Well, I mean, before I let you get on your way, a couple of things I'd just like to cover. You have actually given us a cracking story already, but do you have any other funny stories from your career that you could share with us? I can't remember now. I think you asked me before and I'd written something down. Uh, something about with Jason Donovan. Oh God, yeah, that was funny. But you have to you have to be of the era that you know. Um, yeah. So this is when I was at the Conrad. This was, um, you know, you. I always have a problem with clients who say, "Don't you know who I am?" <laughs> yes. Um, anyway, so basically, the doorman at the Conrad was a big Australian guy, and is Jason Donovan ever going to hear this podcast? Un- highly unlikely. <laughs> okay, so he was he was somewhere around Chelsea Harbour anyway. He um, he wanted to come in for drinks after, after we, in theory, you know, non-residents can't come in. And so the doorman said, I'm sorry, you know, you can't come in. And he said, um, don't you know who I am? And the doorman and they looked him up and down and said, yeah, 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 Australian soap star. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Uh, musician, plays in a band, singer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jason Don's just standing there waiting. And he said, mm-hmm, Craig McLaughlin. <laughs> which is a completely random other soap star second rate singer Jason Donovan was turned purple turned on his heel and stomped off and, and of course the doorman knew exactly who he was but he thought nah I'm just gonna just ride you a little yeah. and I thought that was just brilliant and it just gave us a good giggle the following morning at the morning meeting yeah brilliant and do you know what that that actually gives Jason Donovan more to learn about himself than it does your doorman um uh, as well because um you know there's as we spoke about earlier on there's no there's never any need for an ego uh, in any situation no no even in celebrity great well i 
Final question before I let you go. Uh, what three reasons would you give for somebody to come and join hospitality as a career? We've probably covered a couple, but in any case, we'll formalize. Yeah, um, I think if you like people, you should just come, um, come and experience working with people because every day is different and it's good fun. And I think if you care about people's happiness and wanting to give joy, then that's also a, a, a really good reason. But um, yeah, I, I think every day is different. And I think in hospitality, there, there is no, there's nothing mon mundane about it. You know, I've worked with entertainment stars, I've worked with sporting stars, I've worked with, you know, everybody. I, one of the loveliest lunches that we do is the Sainsbury's long service lunch. And the, the checkout ladies that come across, actually it's a dinner, and it's totally brilliant. Actually, this is a funny anecdote. We were doing the lifts and we'd got, I think it's about four or 500 ladies from the Sainsbury's checkout girls. And this, honestly, this is their biggest night of their year. Yeah. And they're all in their black tie stuff. And the cocktails was meant to start down in the, the Nine Kings ballroom. And all of the lifts packed in. Oh, God. And it was God. like, oh, my God. So I sent up, we've got 16 floors, 16 waiters with champagne and drinks with the staff lift still work, thank God. So we got them up and they we did drinks in the um sorry about this. Sorry. Drinks in the lobby um of the lift lobby. And and took us about twenty minutes to get the um get the uh, the lifts back going. They were the nicest people. They'd had the best time standing yeah. in the lift lobby, chatting with their friends, having their champagne, and then came giggling down into their, their own cocktail party. But that could have been complete carnage, but it ended up as a really nice team building type good fun. But yeah, so you have all sorts of people from every walk of life coming in and it's fun, far much better than any other industry where you just turn up and you shuffle papers or you build widgets or something. Yeah. Uh, our business isn't like that. But you know what? If you do like shuffling papers, there's still a job for you in hospitality as well. <laughs> That's true, actually. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, our finance team know they, but also there's people at the end of those papers, so they understand what's yeah. going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not products, it's people. No, and I've I've, I've worked in uh, recruitment uh, of finance people across other sectors in my life, and uh, there's, there's no comparison, no comparison whatsoever. Yeah, the, the fin finance people get a, a a bad rep for all the wrong reasons, but the finance people yeah. that work in hospitality are just yeah. as buoyant and just as delightful as as everyone yeah. else. That works here. Yeah, my lot are all going ten pin bowling tonight. So yeah, they're a lot of fun. Very good, great stuff. Well, look, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Uh, I'm sure there's so much more that we could have spoken about, but um, you've got a, a cracking journey, a cracking journey ahead. I would assume uh, as well, much to be done. And uh, wish you and and your team all the very best for the future. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. It's been lovely talking to you. Likewise. Take care, Sally. And there we have it, an epic career from Sally so far with some monumental learnings across many areas. A massive thank you to her for coming on the show. We'll be back as usual at 8pm next Wednesday with the story of an absolute legend of the industry. So until then, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.